Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March 31st, and as we get to the end of March in 2021, it's becoming increasingly clear that there's a, a recalibration, a rebalancing of things in Joe Biden's America. There's obviously going to be a dramatic, very vivid contrast between him and Donald Trump, but we're beginning to see it in policy terms. Today, um, the newspapers, and of course, it's always the New York Times that we cite as the mother of newspapers in America, uh, are headlining his $2 trillion plan to rebuild infrastructure and reshape the economy. Where's the money going to come from, that $2 trillion bill? Uh, many people will ask, particularly the Republicans. And for better or worse, it is coming from business groups, from um, private enterprise who I think in the minds of many people in the Democratic Party, particularly on the left, have plundered America. The private is dominating the public. And we need, uh, and I'm certainly one of the people in this camp, we need a rebalancing, a general recalibration of, um, of the way in which uh, resources are allocated in this country. Um, and the issue of business is a broad one. After all, uh, is business just business? Uh, some people believe that some of the, the worst offenders in America when it comes to business are not institutions naturally associated with private enterprise. Uh, my guest on the show today, uh, Devarian L. Baldwin, a professor at Trinity College in Connecticut, uh, believes that universities which many people see as the good guys in America today, are guilty of many of the same crimes, and I use that word carefully, as private enterprise. Um, uh, Deverian Baldwin has a new book out, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Uh, this idea of plunder, of course, is one that Biden and his, uh, his group uh, in, in political terms in America are using more broadly when it comes to the American economy. Um, it is, of course, an extremely controversial subject. I'm not sure everyone will agree with you, uh, Devarian, uh, but can we group universities with business when it comes to this plundering of America? We certainly can. So thanks about first of for first of all, thanks for having me here. And we certainly can talk about universities in a way that we have not normally discussed them. And it's particularly tied to their role in what we're calling the knowledge economy, which is the primary economic driver, particularly of urban America. The knowledge economy is this um rise of using academic research for uh profitable goods and patents in a range of fields from pharmaceuticals and software to military uh, defense weaponry. And at the center of this economy are universities who provide the research and development for this kind of work. And this work is happening primarily on campuses where that land remains tax exempt. 
So the very status of universities in higher education more broadly as offering a public good may have once made sense when they played a much smaller role in our economy. But now they play a such more significant role in our economy and part of their wealth is generated by the shelter that's provided to them by their property tax exemption, there must be a reckoning and a realignment of our understandings of the political economy of our country. I'm sure this is making you very popular at Trinity College, Devarian. Um, and I, I really admire, actually, in all seriousness, your bravery here, your, uh, your outspokenness. You say this is a new thing, but you quote in your book that in 1967, uh, Senator J. William Fulbright, not necessarily a man associated with radical leftist thought, uh, at a speech at Stanford, of all places, talked about something he called the military-industrial-academic complex. So this is not necessarily a new thing, is it? No, it's not a new thing. But after the Bayh-Dole Act, so first of all, you're right. So during the Cold War, a small number of schools like Stanford, MIT, UChicago, and others were already beginning to put together the pieces of what today we're calling the knowledge economy around wartime research and development. But with the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, this whole phenomena ramps up nationwide. Now, what does this act do? This act was put together, actually it was a lobbying group of universities that, that pushed for this act. Most research on campuses is federally funded. And previously before this act, because it was federally funded, it could not be privately owned. It could not be converted into intellectual property. It had to remain in, in the public good, in the public domain. But with this act, all of a sudden, federally funded, yes, our dollars, research, could now be privately owned by colleges and universities when that research was conducted and they could sell this research on the market for royalties that go back to the university. And so after 1980, a series of colleges and universities, especially research universities, began to ramp up what we call the transfer technology department as a way to generate revenue from selling their research on the market research that was underwritten by public dollars. The macro uh, level implications of this, I think, are, are really interesting. We, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of the political thinker Michael Lind. He has a new book out, The Class War, uh, Saving Democracy from the Metropolitan Elite. His his argument, I think, is a broader one, but it very much is very much in sync with yours. And he talks about the coming to power of what he calls the managerial elite, uh, who were first identified by James Burnham in the 1930s. Um, to what extent is what you're describing, this conflict between the university uh, and the rest of us, or certainly people outside this managerial elite, to what extent is it the new class war, Devarian? Well, in my work, I could, we could replace the uh, the managerial elite with what I take on, Richard Florida's notion of the creative class. And in that book, he argues that with the decline of uh, industrialized capitalism and the rise of service, knowledge, information capitalism, um, the way in which former Rust Belt cities can come back, can revive from the decline, is to re-retrofit their cities in ways that will attract 
these creative types mm. in design, in the design fields, in biotech, in pharmaceuticals, in the medical fields. Um, and not surprisingly, his idea of this creative city looks a lot like a campus. In fact, he he named higher education as a key fulcrum point in the capacity to, for cities to attract these creative types to rebuild, to revitalize their cities. And so what this book does um, kind of um, in a secondary way is to highlight the underside of that creative class celebration. And so um, that is where my conversation lies. That is where my point of um, conversation lies. So in this critical point after the 1980s and into the 90s, you have this interest convergence between city leaders and university administrators, because on one side, city leaders are trying to capture those who are coming back to the city, those empty nesters and young professionals who want to come back to the city. And their vision of the city is very much so like a campus. And on the other side, you have university administrators who are trying to compensate for significant loss in state revenue. At one point in time, state um, state governance um, offered over 60% of the operating budgets for, co for colleges and universities. That goes down to 20 and 30% in many, in many areas. So you have this interest convergence between universities looking for new revenues and cities trying to compete with each other to capture this new tax base. And this gives rise to what I call the university. And so this is where my story um, begins to really ramp up and saying, okay, what are the consequences of this rollout? What are the consequences of turning our cities into a campus? What are the consequences of retrofitting um, our, 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 our city blocks, primarily located in the working class communities and neighborhoods of color that surround these campuses? What does it mean to turn those neighborhoods into uh, campus annexes, into campus, a, a, a campus expansions? And that's where the real conversation begins. Yeah, and it's a fascinating conversation because you cite Richard Florida, who who is um, scattered through your book. Most people associate Florida's creative class in a, in, a, in a particularly positive way, and these people tend to be politically liberal on the left. Um, but you argue that that these uh, that this this creative class is actually helping decimate. Um, communities of color, poorer communities. Uh, so is Florida's notion altogether bad? Are the creative class by definition problematic when it comes to universities and the cities? No, not at all. And um, to be fair to Richard Florida, in his last book, he even he, he faced so much pushback about the unintended or the unspoken consequences of this creative class phenomena that he's even pulled back to look at the ways in which it actually can lead or heighten gentrification. And so if we look at the creative class in isolation, it is a powerfully celebratory um, um, uh, diagnosis. But if we look at the under the, the working class or the, the underside of the creative class, those who do the service work of the creative class, so we're talking about on campuses, we're talking about the food service workers, the grounds crew keepers and the neighbor, the residents who live in the neighborhoods, there is a negative consequence. And so taking, for example, a place where he went to consult, he went to Detroit to consult on um, how to make that city come back from its post-industrial or deindustrializing woes. And the response has been that that has been followed by many cities. Concentrate investment and development in a targeted area, so what they call the 7.2 square miles, the downtown core. 
And that's a good thing. But what's happened in most of these cities is that then the rest of the city, the 154 square miles around that 7.2 square miles of Detroit has been left to die. So these kinds of investments that are going into attracting the creative class type, they work, but you can't concentrate them into a hierarchy of haves and have nots. As I like to say all the time, when the Starbucks comes to the neighborhood or when the, the hip new restaurant or the, or the waterfront gets revitalized, the people that live there, they want to enjoy the waterfront, for, waterfront too. So you need certain kinds of protections. You need certain kinds of oversight that allows development to happen without displacement. Uh, Devarian, we've had a number of shows recently about the impact of colonialism, um, both historically and on the contemporary world. We had the English uh, academic uh, Kahindi Andrews on. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Uh, it's quite controversial. And I, I was intrigued by the way in which you use sort of the colonial metaphor to describe the way in which universities come into the city. Again, I, I've got a, uh, you're, you're talking about ASU, Arizona State University. Uh, you say that they come to the downtown like Columbus, discovering the new world and treating it as if it's a blank state. And of course, conveniently or otherwise, forgetting that there were already people there. To what extent is this comparison between universities and the Columbuses of the world? Is that metaphorical or literal? Um, it's actually in the case, it, it varies from city to city, but in the Phoenix uh, story, and also in the New York City story with, Colum with Columbus University, not surprisingly, uh, it's actually quite literal because the capacity for these institutions to come in and save the city requires them to see what's there as empty. And the way they imagine or evaluate what's empty is they align it or they evaluate it or equate it or measure it based on the revenue that those neighborhoods generate within a real estate matrix. So if we look at these areas based on their value per square foot, then we can then imagine them as empty. And then therefore, anything that we as a university does in that neighborhood is in essence, an act of salvation. It justifies our right to be there and to do whatever we choose without much scrutiny. So when we bring in the real estate nexus, the use or the capacity to understand these spaces as blank, as empty, as, as desolate, as in need of salvation is a literal one. It becomes a mechanism by which these entities can come in without much pushback if we use a purely real estate speculative metric. It's really interesting, Devarian. Another guy we had on the show who, whose book I really like was Tom Zollner. I don't know if you know him, but he writes yeah. about America and he politicizes geography. I've quoted this several times before in different shows. He writes, the American concept of geography has undergone a powerful shift Place is less important than it has ever been to those who can free themselves from it, yet more important to those who aren't able to leave it. Your book, in many ways, is about geography, too, and the different ways in which people are tied to their own geography. Mm, that's very true. And so even when we look at universities, they've been quite savvy to say that they, you know, they uh, John Sexton at New York University, he makes... He's a bad guy. He's, if, if there are any... <laughs> particularly bad guys in the New York University. It's this 
snake oilsman salesman uh, right. Sexton from NYU. My son went to NYU, so I've contributed okay. to his snake oilsman uh, uh, <laughs> career anyway, for yes, better or worse. And to be clear, in full disclosure, I'm also an alum of NYU as well. And <laughs> and so uh, he turns this. So so universities are not as nimble because you know they're big, bureaucratic, they're old. Um, they they can't move with the markets in the way that other other entities can. And so he did a savvy thing in the in the in the 1990s and 2000s, actually 2000, where he said that you know um, New York is governed by the fire economy, finance, insurance, and real estate. But with the rise of fiber optic cables, they're more nimble and they have no allegiance to the city. They will leave you and and um, leave you to your own devices. But unlike them, unlike fire industries, we universities are part of the ice economy, information, culture, and education. We can't leave in the same ways. We actually benefit from the amenities of being in cities. And therefore, he uses this quip, this, this quip um, ice will stop or prevent the power of fire from going out. And, you know, he meant this as in a salesman way, but he also told a very real truth of the ways in which higher education became the face for right. insurance in real estate. And, and what's particularly, right, what's particularly ironic, I think, about this politicization of geography, going back to Zollner's point about the concept of geography undergoing a powerful shift. There are two Americas, people attached to geography and people who aren't, people who can leave their neighborhoods and people that can't. And the kids that go to NYU or University of Chicago, they're being trained to liberate themselves from geography, to become mobile, where the people that you're writing in defense of, they can't leave, can they? That's right. Um, to be fair, one of the only times that black and brown homeowners can actually benefit from capitalism in a real way is when they get gentrified and they can sell their homes. But for the majority of um, uh, people of color who live in these surrounding neighborhoods, who are renters or who can't afford these neighborhoods when property values rise above their fixed means, they're stuck. They're stuck to the devices and the interests of these universities. This is made most clear in the expansion of campus police who are now these armed private forces that have the public authority of city police and they're armed and their primary function that we we say their primary function is community service or public safety but it's been very, it's, in my book i reveal the ways in which they become the front line in securing neighborhood blocks yeah, it's very the- chilling your, your book does deal with this and brings the universe this this issue of universities and and cities into the the whole debate about Black Lives Matter and the treatment of police, particularly of kids of color, particularly young men who you have one terrible, chilling story of a boy who kept on wandering. I think it was onto the University of Chicago campus and he get he got stopped by the police four times a week for doing absolutely nothing. And just to add to that story, he got stopped at first on the campus. But as the jurisdiction of the police extended throughout the South Side, when he stepped outside of his home, he was already under the jurisdiction of the of the campus police. And so this is a powerful, not even a metaphor, it's just a powerful story about the ways in which the police became an extension of university interests, even off the campus. And, and, and so the other every, thing that, yeah. that, that your book, I think, deals with very well is the way in which 
private space is dressed up as public space. You have this great description um, of Harper Court in Chicago. Again, another kind of trick that's being played on the local community. Uh, these, these places are presented as public space. Mm. Uh, and they've been, again, using, your, uh, using this word carefully, colonized by the university. But they're essentially mouths, suburban mouths without the walls and ceilings. And they're treated as, as, as private space. It's kind of like the internet, isn't it? It's like Google or Facebook, which present themselves as public space, but are actually private, highly profitable areas in which we're all contributing um, our, uh, our data. The same is true, I guess, uh, in these extended campuses. There's no question about it. And um, another version of that Harper Court we can find in uh, South Los Angeles, that's what it's called now. It's actually South Central. It's been rebranded to make it safer to white Americans and, and consumers at South LA. Um, USC uh, built a new village and they're, no, they're always called villages and districts and, and communities, these knowledge communities, um, these retail islands. And it was derided in terms of architecturally as the as the a design where Disneyland meets, meets Hogwarts. And so there are these, like the pictures you just showed, they are these faux urban playland playgrounds. So students and families from suburban areas come into the city and they believe they're in a, a real urban environment, but it's been this simulated urban experience that has been created by the university as a way to capture the labor and the value of those interested in urban experience without actually having to be in the city directly. Yeah, it's like living in, and and some some uh, some demonstrators in Chicago uh, parodied this. The University of Chicago private property. Please do not look too closely. Uh, if there is uh, a university at the center of your book, it is Chicago. You're even critical of Obama and, and his way in which he set up his uh, university library in Chicago. You begin the book, uh, Devarian, with mm -hmm. um, uh, a wonderful statement, a wonderful sentence. I never thought a university would foretell the future of our cities. But there I was on December afternoon in 2003, stepping out into the brisk south side air after hours holed away in the University of Chicago's uh, Regenstein Library. I immediately heard chants of protest and saw people buzzing about. What was that protest about, and why is that so important? Yeah, I mean, and it, and it comes to the very sim the simul the simulation the simulacrum that you mentioned earlier. We talked about the design pieces in that story. Um, there is an historic blues club to the north of the university campus in the Bronzeville neighborhood. Right, it's called the home of the blues. It's the old checkerboard lounge. For those people watching here, we have an image. Fantastic. And so this is a place that was co-owned by the blues great Buddy Guy. Um, it was a place that um, had concerts by Coco Taylor, the Rolling Stones, Eric Clapton. So blues greats, it was called a blues shrine for international and national blues tourists. And because of years of urban renewal and the demolition of commercial development around the campus, um, over the years, the University of Chicago was left with no nothing to keep students and faculty on campus spending the dollars. And after a while, they found their own faculty and students going to the checkerboard lounge for to, to spend their money. And so, as why they wouldn't they? I mean, who wouldn't want to go to a place like that, right? Right. Well, this is combined with the fact that there was nothing to do on the campus. 
in the 90s and 2000s, you could still see people wearing T-shirts around you, Chicago, with, with the phrase, the, the place where fun comes to die. So as universities became this place, this, this destination for a full urban experience, the University of Chicago was caught flat-footed with nothing to offer. And so they saw students and residents and faculty going to the Checkerboard Lounge. And so in the moment, in one moment, there was a, a leaky roof problem, which residents thought they could easily help fix. But before they knew it, the headlines in the news stated the University of Chicago is coming in to save the Checkerboard Lounge. They had purchased or they had offered to relocate the lounge into the Harper, the very image you showed earlier, the Harper Court District. They re, they moved right, the here lounge. We have, here we have the new image, which right. uh, looks is, like an avalanche. Yeah, it looks like a big public lavatory compared to uh, yeah. this remarkable place that I would have loved to have gone to. Right. And so they move it as the anchor to keep. So if students and faculty are going to Bronzeville, they want them to stay on campus. And this becomes the beginning of their kind of amenities development as a way to keep knowledge workers, students, faculty, researchers, to give them amenities that will keep them on campus working and spending their money. And as I followed this, this, um, this, this, this seizure of the lounge, and Black residents in Brownsville, they charge cultural piracy in the face of this because they want to use the lounge to develop their own community. And so as I began to explore this story, I did what academics did, do. I began to do research. And I found out that this lounge seizure was just the tip of the iceberg around the role that universities play in controlling urban communities. Quiet as it's kept, Colleges and universities are the biggest employers, real estate holders, healthcare providers, and even policing agents in major cities across the country. So what does this mean? This means that they set the land values for our cities. They set the wage ceiling for our cities. They manage the policing priorities in our cities. And this is just that, and while I start with communities of color that surround these campuses, the growing impact and governing role of universities in cities, they're doing these things for cities writ large. And so we must all be aware and pay attention that these black and brown communities, they are the canary in the coal mine for the conditions that we are all going to face if we're living in cities. One of the nice things to vary in about the book is uh, in the shadow of the ivory tower is while it's very critical, it's not entirely uh, pessimistic. You do have hope. You go to the University of uh, Winnipeg um, mm -hmm. uh, in Canada, surprise, surprise, where you find uh, a, a, a university which is not making the same mistakes, which is acknowledging a lot of the problems uh, and damage that universities have done to, to cities. And you come up with your own six-point manifesto for fixing this. So very briefly, perhaps you might go through it. Uh, Sure. You're in favor of, 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 of and I, again, I'm quoting you here, city-enforced payment in lieu of taxes. What does that mean? So right now in all 50 states, colleges and universities are identified as a 501c3 nonprofit, which means that they are exempt from property taxes, which has a direct impact. The property taxes they don't pay in their cities is directly related to the conditions, the poor conditions of public schools, roads, um, thinking about Texas, electrical grids, snow removal, trash mm -hmm. removal, 
and increase property taxes for small businesses. There's a direct relationship between what they don't pay and what doesn't go to the cities where they sit. And they so, probably should be uh, in this Biden reform. I, I'm guessing if if your if your suggestion took place, then they'd be paying more taxes. They would be. And so um, right now, some universities offer a voluntary payment in lieu of taxes a pilot. I think they should be mandatory because what happens is that universities brag about the um, the tutoring programs and the economic impact that never trickles down to these neighborhoods and the educational um, uh, facilities that they offer. But what they don't say is that the very prosperity they hold is directly tied to the wealth they extract in public dollars and non-taxation that comes from these cities. They're able to be prosperous in the ways that they are because they don't contribute. They pull from the cities where they sit. So that's that connection needs to be made. So that's yeah, I agree. And, and, and also they tend to be annoyingly virtuous as well and <laughs> preachy. Uh, your, your second point is uh, a community benefit agreements what are those and why would they fix help fix this stuff so um when columbia expanded into west harlem and when usc built their usc village they were required because of both city and community protests to put together community benefits agreements right now with the obama library there's a community benefits coalition of community organizations calling for a cba and these usually include a series of amenities or benefits that go to the neighborhoods in which these developments sit. They can include a range of things from uh, scholarships um, to um, building, say, a fire station or a community center. Um, they could be they could include um, zip code specific job training programs or construction um, jobs. They could include some things like which was being called for in Chicago. A, uh, a a property tax a property tax trust. So as property taxes rise in neighborhoods faced by people who have fixed incomes, this trust would help to overcompensate to compensate for the increase in property values. So all these types of the school of public schools can be included in community benefits agreements. So these are things that can help offset the possibilities of displacement and marginalization that come with the expansion of university developments into marginalized communities. Again, it comes back to the politicization of geography and the way in which we can fix that. Uh, your, your third point are community-based planning and zoning boards. Um, yeah. And I, I right. think your, 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 your suggestions reflect the reappearance of government and the state in Biden's America in response to the catastrophes of the of the Trump age, that's right. And it's 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 the it's the reassertion of the government and the state. But if you read my 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 chapter on New York, it's also the reassertion of people power. Um, in New York City, there are strong community boards that vehemently protested both NYU and Columbia expansion, but those community boards have only have advisory power. The power rested in the city council. And here we and, have, by the way, an, an image of, of, of some of those demos against the expansion right. of NYU. Uh, right. People dressed up as purple people eaters. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So so the community advisory, the community boards were on the right path because they lived there. They understood the consequences of this. But they, they're, 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 
their ideas about doing things differently had no enforceable teeth. So in Colombia, they were very clear that we we want Colombia to come and mix their development with ours. We could put a, 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 a campus building here, affordable housing here, um, a workshop here, a factory here. But Colombia said, no, we want the whole area to be a campus. And so um, community-based planning boards and zoning boards would, with enforcement teeth would say, any development that a university expands to our neighborhoods would have to go through an evaluation by the zoning board and we would have the enforceable power to deny, accept, or alter the plans with before they would be accepted by the city. Fourth thing, and, and let's try and get through these uh, brief as briefly sure, as we can, sure. Javarian. Uh, uh, just an equitable public safety. Well, what's that all about? So right now there are um, people across America calling for police abolition, or or um, and or at least the transition of armed policing into public safety of care, unarmed care, that we know that most of the stops that police do do not require armed stops. So a perfect place to begin doing this, where there are already medical schools that do trauma work and public health work, would be a university. Campus police do not need to be armed. We can transition armed campus police into units of public safety and care. Right, so the university can become a, a a petri dish for reforming the police. We've had a number of shows about that. And we've also had a number of shows about labor, unions, uh, mutualism, new ways of labor organization in the 21st century. How do the universities, in your view, ideally play into that? Well, when first it comes of all, to labor as I, practices. As I said before, we don't we, we see these places as a schoolhouse and not as a uh, a, a, a workshop and not as a as a as a shop floor. And they are the shop floor of America's cities right now. Shout Literally. Out to- I mean, not just metaphorically, of course. These are, the, right. these are the people who have been riding the trains during the pandemic. That's right. And so shout out right now to Columbia University's graduate students who are on strike, NYU and Brown who are about to go on strike. They are talking about the ways because they have been made to be seen as apprentices. So this means that they are their labor is being exploited. So... All workers on campuses should have the right to collectively bargain. They should no longer be seen as apprentices. They should be seen as workers. Finally, the country, the other piece of news today, Devarian, is the final four. Uh, right. Country, This country is obsessed with college sports, but you suggest that there needs to be a profound rethinking. You're, not, you're certainly not alone here when it comes to athletic revenues. How's that going to help the problem? So, for example, right now during the big dance, the March Madness, you might have seen or we might have all seen a couple of African-American basketball players with the T-shirt hashtag not NCAA property. We know that the NCAA under the guy, again, educational purposes. So for student workers, the, 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 the shelter for the university is apprenticeship for student worker, for athlete workers. The cover is amateurism. And so under the cover of amateurism, the millions of dollars that comes from the, the jerseys and the TV contracts, the, 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 the workers, the athletes receive nothing from that. And on top of that, the stadiums that are built in these neighborhoods I'm discussing are also tax exempt. 
and there's little benefit from these stadiums or from this this uh, Final Four, this March Madness that goes to the communities that produce these athletes. So I'm saying that number one, the athletes should be compensated, and number two, the neighborhoods that produce these athletes and that host these stadiums should also be compensated. Some of the $900 million that's generated in the one month of March should go to these neighborhoods that make these entities possible. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's a, a particularly absurd irony, a chilling, disgusting irony, actually, that universities that are supposed to be these places for discovering truth have become the home of so many lies. And when it comes to athletics and this fetishization of amateurism, I think this summarizes it. So Deverian uh, Deverian L. Baldwin's new book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower. It's a book about universities and how they're plundering our cities, but it's also a broader book about racism, about inequality, about revitalizing government, about labor. It's a wonderful read. Um, you. And uh, in addition, uh, so everyone needs to, to, to look at that book. Uh, in addition, uh, Deverian, I know you're stuck, if that's the right word, at Trinity <laughs> College in Connecticut, okay. um, in the university. Uh, what else should people be reading in these strange times where we're still waiting to get out of our COVID nightmare? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting with students right now, both online and, and in person. Uh, and I have a class that's focused just on one book, my favorite book of all time. My, my son is named Ellison, and it's the book Invisible Man by the great Ralph Ellison. Um, I feel like if there is any great book that you want to sit with and ponder and, and, and explore allegory and shadows, talk about Shadow of the Ivy Tower, and explore the shadows of language and power, um, this is one of the books that we should be revisiting. This is probably my 50th time reading the book this year. And I, I, I can't wait to read it again. And I hope that you all sit and read it with me. Well, it's ironic, uh, Deverian Baldwin. Uh, you've exposed the hypocrisy of the university, but you are one of the best scholars, one of the best advertisements for American universities yourself. Uh, so congratulations both on the book and I think on, on, on a wonderful argument, an important new argument bringing together so many of the strands that we've had on the show before. So I hope you'll come back on the show and, and talk about uh, some of your other work. Thank you so much. A real honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Let me just say that for those that wonder why I'm doing what I'm doing, this is exactly what scholars, this is what universities should be doing, right? If we can claim to solve the problems of the world, why not turn and look at the problems in our own backyard? So cheers to you. Thank you.